Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 177 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, delighted to be joined by graphic designer and film producer, Simon Halfon, as we discuss his incredible portfolio of work with The Jam, The Star Council and Paul Weller Solo. We kick off with his love of The Jam, hear how he fell into art design by accident and how his first commission as a freelancer in 1982 was from Paul Weller. When Paul formed the Star Council with Mick Torbett in 1983, it was Simon that he turned to for the record sleeve designs, starting with Speak Like a Child, right through to the Modernism album cover that was completed for its ultimate release in the 90s. We also chat about Simon's creations for Paul Weller for singles and albums for 20 years of the solo career. An incredible collection of work from that first single sleeve for Into Tomorrow to those wonderful match day programs and merch designs right through to 2010's Fast Car Slow Traffic single. He also designed every single album sleeve right up to Wake Up The Nation. Another dream guest on the podcast. Let's get into it. Simon Halfen, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. This podcast series is nearly three years old now, ridiculously. And you know the end game, the goal of getting to Mr. Weller. But you play such an incredible part of that story from the Star Council to the solo years. So it's lovely to have you on. I mean, so many Weller fans are going to be delighted that you're on the podcast here with us. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's been a big part of my life for many, many years. And uh, yeah, I'm very proud of kind of the work that I've done and my sort of association with it for the best part of 30 years, really. Yeah, which is nuts, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm only 42. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You started as a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, I have to ask because we're, I'm looking at you. Obviously, this is an audio podcast, but what I can see in the corner of the room is a Rickenbacker over there. Yes. I mean, that was um, a gift from his nibs 
back in the day. I th- I've, moved, I've just moved back from America. I lived in Los Angeles from 90, 1990 to 96. And I just moved back. He turned up at my flat one day, said, I've got a present for you. And there it was in its flight case and this beautiful Rickenbacker, sort of um, sunburst Rickenbacker. And uh, yeah, it's taken pride of place ever since. You know, not that I can play a note on it, but it's just always something that for me, Rickenbackers, even as a kid from the, you know, seeing the Beatles, I was fascinated by that guitar or enthralled by it, I should say, not fascinated enough to actually pick one up and try and learn how to play it, (laughs) but just by the look of it, you know, so um, to have one and then certainly to have you know, one of his sort of played Rickenbackers was lovely. You know, it was a lovely gift, lovely welcome home gift. Yeah, amazing. And we'll dig into that because I understand there was an amazing road trip before you did come home in Vegas. But we'll talk about this later on. There's so much we're going to cram into this conversation. Let's kick off with the Beatles because you talked about the fact that art was never your thing at school. But as a kid, you loved music. And then you said, I say music, but it was really just the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, the Beatles, you know, the first record I ever got given the by my grandparents when I was a kid was Beatles for Sale and I just loved that record and played it endlessly but not only played it endlessly I kind of poured over the record sleeve I don't know if you remember but it's a gatefold but the record goes inside rather than outside and we kind of you know it's that stayed with me and we used it gosh I think we used it a couple of times but firstly on our favourite shop that was the same style sleeve and then we did it again I'm thinking on Stanley Road so yeah that that kind of from being a literally a toddler and having that record sleeve, it kind of manifested itself all the way through to the 80s and 90s. I love that. Those little nods back. I hadn't clocked that, I'll be honest. Yeah, no, that was that was where that came from. And obviously, Paul was fully aware of that. I mean, that was the, one of the things that sort of bound Paul and I together all those years was our love for the Beatles, you know, you know everything kind of Beatle related so um he was up for that immediately you know let's do it that way i remember um, sonia phillips coming on the podcast who directed a couple of the videos things i think broken stones one of them and she talks about the fact that paul gave her this massive box of beatles videos to go away and watch because he wanted to replicate some of the bits of the style or something like that and i just love the fact that i mean proper super fans right oh yeah 100 percent. yeah i mean you have to get up pretty early in the morning to catch paul out on you know, to ask him any sort of Beatle question that he wouldn't have an answer to or know the reference point or whatever it is. You know, he's sort of died in the wall, Beatle nuts, definitely. <laughs> now, The Clash and The Jam were your bands as well. So let's go back 16 years old, 1977, and you were there right from the beginning. Not so much with The Jam, really. I didn't see The Jam, really, till 79. That was the first time I saw The Jam. But The Clash and The Jam were my bands. And, you know, that whole kind of punk and new wave thing. You know, I loved Elvis Costello and I loved Dean during The Blockheads. And it was an exciting time because I remember I went to school in Hammersmith and on the way home from school, I'd stop at Stiff Records, which was in Alexander Street. It was just kind of like a shop front back then. You know, you could pop in there and you'd get badges and they'd give you posters. And it was it felt like a really sort of cool and funky place, even though it really genuinely was just the kind of shop front. And so that's where I think my sort of passion for that music was kind of reignited out of the stiff records. I remember Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll was a big record at school. And so it kind of sort of manifested itself there. I, I loved the jam and I loved the clash. And Tom Robinson band was another band that I was a big, big fan of back in the day. And I went to Latimer Upper School in Hammersmith. I think the Tom Robinson band was kind of like the school band in a way. That was the band that all the kind of six formers went to see. And they were kind of an easy band to connect with. And again, you know, if you bumped into these guys, they were always super friendly and you felt like, even though Tom Robinson is a little bit older, that you felt that these were bands that were your generation. You know, they weren't that far removed. They weren't five, 10, 15 years older. 
and so you kind of found that you clicked with them really so um, um yeah the stiff records thing was a big moment for me and that's kind of how i kind of got my start really is because i'd seen cosmo vinyl who was the kind of Clash's right-hand man. He was the sort of the aide-de-camp, if you like, for the Clash. <laughs> That's like the he, best name ever, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and then he's, you know, he was this kind of lightning, but is, I should say, this lightning bolt kind of guy. You know, felt very much like the fifth member of the Clash. You know, he was the same age and he had a real kind of... um spark to him and i bumped into him in oxford street i didn't know him but i'd seen him he'd introduced the clash on stage you know he was that kind of guy i got very excited to see him and he just kind of tapped him on the shoulder and we carried on walking and he was chatting away and he just happened to mention in passing that he was working out of stiff records and it was just at that time i'd, I'd been to university it was my first university but i kind of got slung out after a year because i didn't do any work <laughs> and, um, i knew at the end of that year that I, I kind of wanted to work in music for a record company and what have you just prior to that sort of forgive me for jumping all over the place i had met paul when the jam played in bridlington that was the first time i met paul the jam were very approachable you know you could hang about you know, the sound checks you could turn up to, you could hang about afters and you'd get your ticket signed. And, you know, if you were smart enough, you knew what, if you knew where they were saying, which we did, we kind of went back to the hotel and had a drink with them. So that was the kind of first time of meeting Paul, but I was still at Durham then. But I kind of got the sort of the passion for music and knowing that I, I don't know what I wanted to do, but I thought, you know, music was something that I felt really comfortable in, or that world was something that I not felt comfortable in, but sort of perhaps would aspire to. And so, um, during that summer, my, my oldest friends, who I'm still, you know, he's a dear friend to this day, a guy called Todd Graff, who's a screenwriter, New Yorker. He and I decided to do a fanzine. We were very good about setting up interviews and doing interviews. And this was just the only thing we weren't very good at was putting the magazine together or printing it. So I never saw the light. <laughs> but we did all these great interviews. Which is, which is kind of ironic given what you yeah, do later I mean, on, we, right? We, yeah. we really took that whole punk ethic to a new level by just actually not doing it. That was the kind of, um, but what we did do is we interviewed all these great people. You know, we interviewed the jam. We interviewed madness. We interviewed Tom Robinson, Japan, who was another band that I was a big fan of at the time. The jam, we interviewed the jam. Again, you just turned up. I don't know how I even heard about it, but I'd heard somewhere that they were recording, uh, at the townhouse in Shepherd's Bush. I think we just turned up there and we did an interview. I think, you know, Paul was very friendly, but he says, I'll do it with Bruce. So we did the interview with Bruce. And, um, <laughs> um, but I remember we sort of sat in the studio and I think they were recording Monday at the time. And it was great just to sort of be there and sort of kind of hear them recording. And it was just, you know, it was very open in those days. So I kind of got to know Paul a little bit then. Then I left, as I say, university all of a sudden, as it were. And I knew I wanted to work in music. And I thought, well, I'm sort of connected. I know Cosmo Vinyl. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I took, took it upon myself and uh, wandered up to Stiff Records early on a Monday morning, turned up there at 9.30. And this is when they moved from the original offices and they were now above a cab garage in uh, Westbourne Park. You know, I said to the girl behind the switchboard, and it was a proper old-fashioned switchboard, switchboard thing, you know, where you put the wires in, and I said, oh, I'll come see Cosmo Vinyl. He said, well, he doesn't come in every day, um, and if he does, he doesn't come in until the afternoon. And so I said, would you mind if I wait? And there was a sort of plastic chair in the corner, so I waited, and as luck would have it, about 45 minutes later, in bowls Cosmo, takes a look at me, kind of half-recognising me, and I sort of go, hi. I said, I've come to see you, you know, 
He said, hold on a minute. He sort of takes me into the post room. He says, how can I help you? I said, I want to come and work for you. And he goes, well, listen, the Clash aren't doing th- anything at the minute. And just to give you the f- time frame, this is just after London Calling and before Sam Denise had come out. He said, the Clash aren't doing anything at the minute. He said, I'm not earning. And he said, but hold on a minute. So he goes out the post room, comes back in five minutes later and says, do you want to work here? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So he started right away in the post. <laughs> it was that simple. I love it. There's no like, there's no proper job interview or anything like no, that. Right. Just, you know, and it was a temporary thing, but I made it my business to sort of be the first one in, last one out every day. And after about six weeks, they said, listen, we want to make this a bit more permanent. And then Stiff had a big mail order side to their business, all the old singles and posters and T-shirts and if it ain't Stiff and all that sort of stuff. Stuff today that's worth an absolute fortune, I might add. And this was the time when the big record was absolutely Madness's second album. Baggy Trousers had been out and I think it was Embarrassment or whatever the, the next one was. And it was just a really good fun place to work, as you can imagine. And I remember Suggs coming into the post room and sort of introducing himself. And, you know, still to this day, whenever I see Suggs, it's, you know, I get that kind of little thrill, you know, because he's, he's such a lovely guy. Ian Jury was on the label still. It was a good fun time to be working there. And so I enjoyed that. And after a few months, they kind of moved me into being a plugger, which meant, you know, going around taking records to radio stations. And there was only two of us. So I was the junior plugger. So I would have to take in the real crap. You know, the stuff that was never going to get right. I wasn't walking in with the Madness record or the Injury record. I was walking in with, you know, I won't say whoever it was. <laughs> you know, it was never, you know, you could see them putting the needle on the thing and literally putting it down for about three seconds going, nope. No. Oh, no. But, yeah. And I used to hate going up to Radio One because it was quite a confusing place to go because you had to know who the secretary was to a particular producer, what show that particular producer produced. And it wasn't like they sat outside those particular offices either. It was like a little maze. And I had this little map that I'd drawn for myself. And it just got to the point where I just thought, oh, I just, I'd go back to Stiff and they say, how'd you get on? I said, well, no one was in because I'd go. <laughs> I just didn't have, didn't have the heart to go through it. But what I did do on occasion, again, you'd hear through the grapevine that the jam were recording. I imagine it's the gift, actually. And they were recording at Air Studios, which was at Oxford Circus. So instead of going into Radio 1, which is top of Portland Place, I'd walk a bit further up and pop into Air Studios and just go in and see Paul. We weren't friends at all at this point, but he was just very friendly and um, always asked what you're up to and this, that and the other. And I remember coming back to Stiff, sort of explain how I'd been to Radio 1, but I'd come back with a white label of Town Called Malice. Where'd you get out there? So, <laughs> so, and at that time, I had become friendly with Gary Crowley, who I think has done your podcast. Yeah, Gary's lovely, yeah. Yeah, so Gary and I are good, firm friends to this day. And um, Gary was working for a, a plugging company called Modern Media. They had also managing Department S. And I had gone to Top of the Pops with Temple Tudor. They hit, at the time was Swords of a Thousand Men. And I had I was charged with taking their chain mail down for <laughs> Top of the Pops appearance. So I had like four bin bags <laughs> of very heavy chain mail to carry. And who should open the door, hold the door open for me, but Gary. And Gary, how are you? Good, thanks. Do you like the jam? That was his first question, literally, as he's holding the door open for me. Because Gary's company, Modern Media, used to plug the jam records. So Gary and I sort of bonded on that. And Gary would say, oh, I've got an acetate going underground. Do you want it? You know, and to you know, give you all these lovely treats. Really? They looked after a lot of people, you know, like Elvis Costello. And so it was like the hot company where Gary worked. Anyhow, Gary was there. Because Department S were on with Isvik there. 
And, and this is Born to Lose, right? Born to Lose, exactly, yeah. And okay. so just after that, Department S signed to Stiff. And Vaughan, he was a lovely guy, Vaughan, God bless him. You know, really lovely, lovely guy. And Gary was very good mates with him. They put out one single on Stiff called Going Left Right, which didn't go left or didn't go right, as it happened. They didn't bother the charts with any, uh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't dis- disturb the charts. And then the next one they put out, he said, oh, I want to do the cover for my own record. And I said, oh, great, I'd love to do it. I'll help you. So I, he and I came in on a Sunday and we did the sleeve together. And it was nothing to write home about, but it was a fun thing to do. And I think because I was such a lousy plugger, <laughs> <laughs> but Stiff kind of enjoyed having me around. They moved me into the art department. And so that's how I kind of got in because I didn't, hadn't been to art school or anything like that. And it was in those days, it was very much a trade or a skill, whatever you would call it. You, you had to know what you were doing. It wasn't, there were no apps or programs. It was literally. Yeah, this is not computers, right? You're uh, sticking, sticking stuff and layering stuff yeah, out of this yeah, paper exactly, cup yeah. and all that, right? Exactly, yeah. You used to have to know how to mark up things so a printer would understand what you were giving them. So it was like getting thrown in at the deep end. And needless to say, I was pretty hopeless at it. But again, just having fun. And so I lasted there about six months. And then a guy that used to work for Stiff used to come in all the time. And a, a designer, a guy called Neville Brody, had just started work few months earlier on the face magazine so he was a designer for, he designed the face magazine amongst other things and he said listen i'm looking for an assistant Do you want to come and work with me and i said yeah i'd love to so i went to work for neville which was a great experience and that's really where i learned how to do stuff he but also not only learned physically how to do things but learned aesthetically how to do things you know neville was a big influence on the way i would try and design things and it was at that time paul again i'd see paul socially Started to see him socially. We'd meet in this pub called the Barley Mo, which is just sort of the other side of Selfridges off Oxford Street. And, you know, I was still a bit in awe of it. And, and you know, there was him, Paolo Hewitt, who at that time was writing for the Melody Maker, Gary, and we'd sort of go out for a beer. I didn't even drink. I'd sit there with a big sort of pint glass of lemonade or something. <laughs> um, but we sort of all got on, but it was still, you know, I was still very much kind of like a fanboy, really. And every now and again, I would do that same thing. I would pop into Nomis because I knew that's where their offices were, which is Nomis was a rehearsal studio ironically was you know some, fast forward some years but that was set up by simon napier bell who managed wan and no miss backwards is simon so it was his his ah, okay i didn't i never realized that right yeah and they always had great you know you'd see on the board like bands would go there to rehearse before going on tour and you'd see the you know this written marker be oh this you know, you know big fantastic kind of lineup so every time you go in they go blimey this is impressive but anyway john weller had his office there so i'd sort of pop in there every now and again and then Paul said, I'm doing this Small Faces book for my publishing company, Riot Stories. Do you want to design it? I said, great. Yeah, I'd do that. Yeah, I'd love to. So I really did that eagerly. And again, didn't really know what I was doing, but it was a, sort of like a magazine rather than a book. That's your first commission as a freelancer, is it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Funnily enough, at that first Top of the Pops, I'd got friendly via one of Temple Tudor, Bob Kingston with Kim Wilde. And Kim Wilde had just, she was there on that show doing Kids in America. And we kind of got on very well. Kim and I, and she was sort of based out of Rack Studios, which is just down the road from where I lived. That was in St. John's Wood, and I was living in Swiss Cottage. And so we got on really well. And she said, oh, why don't you design my my single sleeve? You know, I'd love you to do that. And so I did that. So I think that and Paul's thing, probably Paul's thing was the first, Small Faces thing was the first design job, but the Kim Wilde thing was the first record sleeve. So that went fine. And um, then I did a book of poetry for Riot Stories for Paul. And then... You know, he sort of, the news came out that he was splitting the jam up. This is still the tail end of the jam. And it was like, oh, you know, we kind of knew about that, but it was sort of a bit hush-hush, obviously, because the story hadn't broken yet. Then 
I get a call at that office. It's Paul. Do you want to come down to the studio tomorrow? This is at Solid Bond Studios in Marble Arch. It wasn't called Solid Bond Studios yet, but it was his studio. So I went down there the next morning. He said, listen, do you want a cup of coffee? And I said, yes, he's boiling the kettle. He says, listen, I'm starting this new band. Do you want to do the covers? And that was it. He said, we're calling it the Style Council. And um, what do you think? And so I yeah, jumped at it. And from that sort of moment onwards, you kind of, you know, they really made you feel part of the team. You know, it was an exciting time because I would have been like that 21, 22. It was just a really good, fun time. Solid Bond Studios was sort of a bit like a clubhouse, really. It was if you were in town, you just popped in. You didn't have to wait to be invited, you know. It was, and they were always there because they owned the studio. So they're always doing something. And, and it was that sort of early run of Style Council singles was kind of amazing. I mean, it's a, you know, hit after hit, but great songs, you know, whether it's Speak Like a Child and The Money Go Round and Laura Summer or Solid Bond, Maybe Changing Moods. It was just like, boom, 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 one after another. And I hadn't met Mick before, but Mick was lovely, you know, really good fun to be around. And it was just became like a little gang, really, where we were just, our days would sort of revolve around, we'd meet at a coffee shop called the St. George's, which was just outside Polydor on on the corner of Hanover Square and St. George's Street. So we'd go and have a cappuccino in, in the morning, as you did. Paul <laughs> um, would sort of rock up with his you know, Paris match rolled up in his coat pocket and his gitan, you know, because everything was about being European. And we'd just sort of sit there, chew the fat. We'd go into Polydor and have a you know, giggle with someone in there or annoy someone. And it was just kind of became our little routine. You know, for I don't know what seems like for a very, very long time, and so it was just good fun. As I say, you really felt like you were part of this little group. You know, even you know, does that you know, on the sleeves, it's like honorary councillors, but you did feel like you were part of a. You know, you never felt excluded at any point in time, and it was exciting because I've never, you know, had that before, and also I haven't been such a fan of Paul's. It just was. It was like, oh wow, this is you know, this is cool. That's be fun. so surreal. This because and particularly this new venture as well. And how much did you know going into that project of what this would be, and the fact that you mentioned the European thing? I mean, I think I think it was Paul Weller who must have brought the cappuccino to the UK. To be honest with you, I don't think it was you a thing what? before that, was it? <laughs> You're funny you should say that. I saw Neil Tennant not so long ago, and I didn't know Neil. Bumped into him in a party, and even though I never knew, really knew him or wasn't friends with him, I'd see. I remember when he came down to interview when he was still at Smash Hits around about the time of Long Hot Summer, and then I bumped into him in various other places while he was still a journalist. He sort of summed it up. He says, "You know, before the Star Council, it was just called Frothy Coffee. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it wasn't. Uh, you know, people didn't know about cappuccinos. So, but the whole thing about." From an aesthetic point of view, was we loved the Blue Note thing. The Beatles were still looming large, as well as as a reference point. But it was all that kind of Ivy League, you know, Brooks Brothers shirts. And these were things that today you, know, you can get a button down shirt, or you can get a paisley tie, or you can get a pair of loafers. Back then, as I said, we used to do our little jaunt cappuccino polydor and then we'd take a wander over to Covent Garden and there was um, John Simons and that was kind of like the Ivy League shop and it still exists in Chilton Street or something now he's still around but we used to go in there and just to see what they had but that was kind of like who he'd import stuff from the US the influences there was no kind of blue notebooks or you'd have to go to kind of record shops and I, I was lucky enough to go to New York a lot back then because my brother lived there so i'd go to new york and come back with these sort of carrier bag full of blue note records because they were still reasonably priced and these are just like oh wow and that was kind of like became if you like the the blueprint for the style council's look 
And that yeah. European thing comes through in so many of those designs. Yeah, obviously, there's this original trip to Paris before yeah. the band, band have even been announced and things. So we'll talk about that. But I read that you, Paul, and Paolo Hewitt, who you mentioned, didn't you start uh, evening classes together to learn Italian? We did, yeah. That, yeah, we did that for about a term, actually. <laughs> Just like an adult learning institute. And we decided to do that for a, did it for about a term, I think. And then none of us did our homework. So leave <laughs> this. It's a, it's a nice try. But yeah, we did, we loved all those things. The first EP was the Paris EP, a Paris EP. And that was a really good fun trip. And then we went back there again to do the Cafe Blur album cover. But the idea, it was never followed through, but there were going to be all these other EPs, like the Style Council go Alpine. And there was going to, like, which was going to be a yodeling. EP. <laughs> so funny, Paul always had the idea for the sleeves before he did the had recorded anything or written anything sometimes. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I think it must have would have been your book or the Soul Deep book, but the but these little sketches and the Alpine one was one that he'd sketched. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's him. Yeah, that, that's right. You're absolutely right. That's in my book. Yeah. So it was funny that you know he'd have these ideas for for records before the records were even written or recorded so um <laughs> the sleeve you know for paul you know the record sleeve and the sort of even down to the sort of the way it's manufactured was super important the way it was laminated i remember one style council sleeve i think it was off the cost of loving it didn't matter one of the whatever the single was, and it was a black and white photo. And we wanted the picture printed in full color, black and white, which gives it a richness, but they just printed it in straight black and white. And the sleeves came in and it's like, uh Oh, so they all had to be scratched. You know, it was that kind of level of, if it wasn't right, it doesn't get through, you know, and Paul had a very high bar for what was good and what wasn't good. Let's talk about this first single. I mean, the front cover, you know, it's black, it's the orange, the famous orange, and that was really thought out in terms of the orange and the type that you'd use, and that, yeah, was, I mean, that was just a slaps on there, was it? Um, I think it's probably somewhere between the two. I mean, Paul, <laughs> I went down to Paul with like a typeface book, various different typefaces, and he said, I really like that one. He says, let's just do the sleeve black and make that orange. It's like, oh, okay, well, we go then. That was done. Well, you say that. There's also the little um, Keep On Burning little logo. Bomb, bomb yeah, bomb that's bomb. where that was first introduced. Yeah, that's sort of like a Northern Soul reference, I guess. Wasn't like it was a huge amount of thought. It was enthusiasm rather. It's a huge amount of enthusiasm, but not a huge amount of thought. Like the picture on the back, which is a fantastic. I would have used that picture on the front if it was down to me. It's such a great evocative picture. Peter Anderson did a fantastic job as being the kind of our go-to guy for those early singles. Lovely guy as well. Yeah, it was just kind of like, okay, let's do that. And then, you know, and it, you know, wasn't Sergeant Pepper that sleeve. <laughs> so, uh, but it kind of, I guess, you know, if you look back now, maybe the thinking was, right, this is a new artist. You know, it's a new venture, if you like. So let's, it's like a, a clean slate, if you like. It's just, it's not saying anything in many ways, is it? It's just, yeah, and if you saw that, I mean, you wouldn't realise that's Paul's new project. But interestingly, yeah. there were versions overseas where it said something along the lines of Paul Weller's Style Council. Or, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, right? And it was, you know, Paul was very keen to not do anything that was sort of reminiscent of the jam. Or it was a different kind of mod aesthetic. It was no, you know, there wasn't, wasn't going to be any targets or anything like that. This is, this is now a new kind of European sort of Ivy League look, if you like. The other thing that was terrific around this time was the press ads. Yeah, we just did that. had so much fun with that stuff. And no one no one had to sign off on it. You know, we just delivered the artwork. And if it, you know, upset people, then so be it. And we'd make up all these quotes or make up all, you know, it was just, and each ad we would do for each publication was different. We'd have some, you know, you could never do that today. And everything is sort of driven by 
you know, sort of product managers and marketing, you could never do that. Yeah, re- a- recall and all that, right? Yeah, is that- yeah, but you couldn't have a like we would put out a single and the poster. Well, for example, Long Hot Summer, you know, uh, the Apari thing was the two boys at the fountain on the single sleeve. And then the poster was just Paul's shoe with the Eiffel Tower in the background. You could never do that today. You know, never in a million years. They'd be, well, hold on, where's the, where's the pack shot? How are people going to, yeah. but it, you know, in those days you kind of got away, not got away with murder, but you just got away with kind of experimenting because it was just a bit of fun and you kind of did what you enjoyed and what you felt was right for the record. And Paul was very up for anything. Yeah, there was obviously, was it the Reagan one, The Wars Come Tumbling Down, yeah, which is just yeah, a great press. So, yeah, brilliant. that's one of my favourites, that one. And, yeah, we had some fun with it. You know, when we did, when The Cost of Loving came out, we did a double-page ad in the enemy, and it was just orange. You know, it was actually, and, you know, I had people saying to me, bloody hell, have you seen that? What's he doing? What's going on? You know, they thought we'd kind of lost the plot at that point in time. And, <laughs> you know, I think maybe we had, maybe we sort of took the this sort of the in-joke too far, but that was really just done as a sort of tribute to, um, or an homage, if you like, to the White Album. You just thought, well, you know, the Star Council's colour's orange, let's just do it orange. But there was that genuine outrage about that from... There was, yeah, there was, yeah. (laughs) There was, yeah, there was. was. I don't don't know why, but um, I think it was sort of cited as the beginning of the end with Paul's sort of relationship with Polydor. Because the album, I don't think, performed particularly well. It wasn't particularly critically well received. And I think the writing was sort of on the wall. But, and there was a new MD as well, who I don't think got on particularly well with Paul. So, um, Do you have a favourite album cover, a favourite single cover that from that time? Oh, I wrote Café Blur, I, I really like. And um, yeah, Café Blur, I, I would have to say, probably my favourite from that time. Oh, you've moved on from fanboy at that point, right? You're actual yeah, proper yeah. proper mates, and like you say, this 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 lovely routine each day, and spending so much time at Paul Weller HQ at Solid Bond and all yeah. that. But presumably, you're loving the music as well. Oh yeah, the music. I remember. I remember going into Solid Bond where they were just doing the finishing touches to the single version of My Ever Changing Moods, and Paul playing it. And I remember thinking, bloody hell, you know, does it get any better than this? I mean, that is a just a rip roaring pop record in anyone's terms. I think, and, that's, and by that time Steve White had joined, and Steve's a lovely guy, you know. So he was good fun, and he's just his drumming just elevated the band anyway. I think, and and then went on to become the bedrock of Paul's solo career as well. But yeah, no, you just you did there was no, you know you kind of wow, wow, that's pretty something special. Now, when the Star Council comes to an end, that final album is rejected by Polydor. Yeah. We, we obviously get to see it 10 years later as part of the box set and there's album artwork and all that. Was that yeah. album artwork created at the time for the LP or no? You know what? That's a good question. I don't really remember. The single Sure Is Sure was done and that was done, that never came out. We did the artwork for that. I think that the photo session was done for the album with Lawrence Watson but I don't think the artwork was done. No, so I think that was sort of reimagined that. Right. Okay. And around this time, you've you've actually moved to LA. I moved to LA the end of 1990. It was just before Into Tomorrow came out. The Paul Weller movement was going. It was the Paul Weller movement. They had just done a few gigs and sort of handful of gigs to kind of pick things up again. So it wasn't like the Star Council came to an end. You're like, right, I'm off to LA. There was a, there was no no. no. I, no I, I, at that time, I'd started working with George Michael. You know, I'd been to Los Angeles on, you know, on various trips for holidays and I'd loved it there. And, I, and at that point, I'd, I'd always threatened, oh, I'm going to go and live in LA one day. And, and George's manager at the time, a guy called Rob Kahane, 
said, well, come on, Mr. Big Stuff. If you're going to come out, why don't you come out? Come and stay with me and I'll, I'll find you a job. And so I went out that summer or late summer. He said, I'll set you up on a couple of interviews. We'll see where we go from there. And I, and I went out there and, you know, I was staying with Rob and just by chance, George was staying with him as well. And it was a nice, you know, it was friends with George and good friends with him at that time. But we sort of kind of really bonded on that trip because we would just sort of spend all day together, sitting by the pool, going out for lunch, going to the movie, going just go shop, whatever it was, we would just kind of hang out and be in each other's company. And it was a really fun trip, actually. But Rob had set me up on two interviews, one of which was... And I spoke about this the other day to someone because this is pre-Google. But the first interview was with a guy called Jimmy Iovine, who was just about to start his new record label, which was Interscope. I knew nothing about him other than he was just this guy who I was having an interview with. I didn't know he'd kind of produced Bruce Springsteen or was the engineer on John Lennon's records and all these things that you kind of, I would have kind of been wide-eyed and, you know, <laughs> anyhow, the interview um, came and went. It was, it was just like, okay. I didn't kind of get the greatest vibe that this is going anywhere. And I felt like he was doing it to go through the motions for Rob. Anyhow, it didn't go anywhere. And I believe he went on to have a successful career with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the other interview was in New York. I had an interview there with a company called Reiner Design. And they had a big East Coast office, but they wanted someone to look after their sort of satellite West Coast office. And they offered me the job there and then, but like the, with the one caveat that I had to start in four weeks. So literally, I came back to London, sort of packed up and moved out to LA. That was just ahead of Into Tomorrow. Obviously, I designed in America. Ridiculously, because this is an audio podcast, obviously, yeah. I, I got all the albums off the shelf and all that. I don't know why. You know what these things are. I know yeah. what these things are. But, um, but let me, I mean, I, I want to grab this just to jog the memory. But I mean, yeah. that, I've got the 12 inch here of Into Tomorrow. That is such a terrific sleeve. The Paul Weller movement. We've got yeah. the, the adaption of the, I guess the Peter Blake kind of mod logo type thing, right? Yeah. Well, you know what? There's a, in fact, we use it in one of the tour books. There's a Nick Knight who we'd worked with on our favorite shop did the photography on that. Paul sent it over, and I, still, I think I put it in my book, actually. It was, you know, the moat you put with it. It's full mod alert. So it was, that's, hence the target was reintroduced. And it was very much a guitar-based song, which Paul hadn't done really with the Star Council. There wasn't anything that was particularly guitar riff driven. So it was just a great record into tomorrow. And it was just kind of him putting his hand in the air saying, I'm back. And it really said as much in great volume. So in those days, the world was a much bigger place. It wasn't like you could send stuff down, you know, whatever it is, you know, the drop boxes or what have you. So he, yeah. you know, it was really good that he still said, listen, I still want you to do my artwork, even though I was, you know, 6,000 miles away. And so from that, Paul had a deal with Pony Canyon before he had a deal anywhere else, which was a Japanese uh, record company. And so the first album came out on CD only in Japan, which was the self-titled um, debut album. And we had some good fun doing that as well. And again, it was Nick Knight did a fantastic job capturing Paul. And it was just, you know, again, it was dipping into all those sort of Beatle references and nicking stuff and hoping no one would notice time. And so, yeah, that, that, that was a good fun time. And, you know, Paul came out to promote this first album which was subsequently signed by Go Discs and who were part of Polygram before it was Universal. And it came out, I think, to play within a, either a 12 or 18 month period. He came to play in LA about five times. So it was, you know, did a week of playing at the, um, or the Variety Theatre or Five Nights there. And then he came back for another trip. And then, and then I think it sort of ended up with him playing at the Greek Theatre, which is where 
Ian McLaren got up with him. And um, I remember That's we had a day in Pasadena because Paul used to stay in Pasadena and Ian McLaggen lived in Pasadena so we had a lovely, lovely afternoon around at Ian McLaggen's just the three of us so, <laughs> as you do I love it yeah it's a really nice memory that actually because he was a lovely guy bless him and so yeah we kind of went from strength to strength he'd say oh, I've got this idea for a thing and I'd get a fax through I've got this idea for the next sleeve or whatever it is or I'd say I've got this thing and he'd say okay and it was it was a nice sort of collaborative um Endeavor, and so we then went from obviously the first solo album, then the second one was Wildwood, and I think with Wildwood, Paul had really hit his stride. It was just like, in many ways, I think Wildwood is sort of like the definitive Paul Weller solo record. I think it just felt like such a great, great, great album, and then that kind of rolled into Stanley Road, and it was just like pieces on fire. I love the fact that even though you're in LA, you're experiencing that. You're part of the mix. You're um, oh, most definitely, yeah. You're seeing that rise again, right? Yeah, no, it was really lovely to sort of, you know, again, feel part of what was going on, you know, and, you know, a close part of it. And um, once we'd uh, done the sleeve for Wildwood, which was, you know, again, Lawrence Watson did the photography on that and it was great. And it was just immediate from that one shot that that was going to be the cover. You know, it was just fantastic, striking image. So that was a kind of no-brainer. And I imagine when you're getting his shots, it's just like from a design point of view, it's just like this is just a dream, right? Yeah, you know, Lawrence is a you know went on to work with Lawrence on the Oasis stuff as well because you know brought him in on that, and that was a few years later. And yeah, always great to work with Lawrence, you know, and always uh, get the results with him. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Let me ask you about Wildwood, right? So 30 years old, which is nuts, right? You mentioned, actually, this is one of the ones where you open the sleeve, the the records inside and all that. Yeah. Talk me through the, the little five pound notes inside. You won't be able to see this, I don't know. Because I, I didn't notice that. Somebody pointed that out to me the other day. And I was like, what? How have I never noticed Yeah, that? I think Stanley Rose got some Rizzlers in it or something. That's the, the Stanley Rose got Rizzlers in it. And it was just a bit of fun. You know, it was just like, oh, let's just put something in there, you know. There was no thinking behind it other than, oh, let's just have a bit of fun. And I think um, on that first tour, I kind of got, because I'd moved to America, I kind of rediscovered football again, soccer. And, you know, I think it was after Italia 90, became this huge Tottenham fan because Gascoigne and Lineker played for, and they were the partnership, they played for Tottenham. So I kept on sort of putting, that's where we did these shirts, like the red shirts with the number 10 on the back. And we sort of got a bit, little, little bit football-y, which Paul was never, you know, a, big fan of but the shirts were popular and, and the match day programs that we'd get match from the day gigs programs, and things, right? yeah, yeah exactly and it even had the 
the layout was like a football pitch, you know, it's just like, you know, in goal with Steve White and, you know, um, like the positions. Yeah. And then there was even a sense of spread was a picture of Paul McCann sort of ghosted in the background or something. So um, maybe push that a little too far because when we did Wildwood, he said, and at that time I'd moved to LA and I'd become a big ice hockey fan as a consequence. And so Paul said when we were doing Wildwood, he said, yeah, no fucking pictures of footballers. <laughs> <laughs> I said, all right. So I replaced it on the Wildwood thing. I said, if you if you see inside the thing, there's a sort of ghosted picture of Wayne Gretzky, who was like the kind of I've not, I've not noticed so, that. Yeah. It, it, so he sort of replaces Gary Lineker. But we had fun with that. We did this, you know, a really nice collage poster that went with that. It was just, I don't know, it just felt organic and it felt really came together nicely. And then the kind of did a couple of really nice single sleeves off of that, the Weaver. Again, a Beatles reference, the wheel there is on that is John Lennon's roller, a psychedelic roller. And then on Hung Up, the back, the wash over that fantastic Lawrence Watson picture is the inner sleeve of Sergeant Pepper, which you probably couldn't get away with today. All the time we were kind of pushing the envelope in our sort of Beatles references, so much so that when it came for album number three, Standing Road, we said, oh, why don't we see if we can get Peter Blake to do a poster for us or something? And so Peter Blake... Because I, I was friends with Mary McCartney, whose father, as you probably remember, was the bass player in Wings. And so he had a, <laughs> so he had a passing phone to Peter Blake. So she got his number. She had his number. And so I got in touch saying, oh, would you at all be interested in meeting with Paul and myself? So we went to meet with him. I was still living in LA, but I used to come back four times a year. You know, I was back. Was, was my, was my, oh, yeah. You're, well, you're flying back for that one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I used to come back all the time anyway. So we went and had a chat with Peter Blake, which we were both thrilled about, obviously. And I think Paul and I both thought, well, this isn't going to go anywhere, but at least we'll have met him. But we were talking and he said, no, I'd love to have a, a you know, I can do the cover if you want. And it's just like, oh, well, okay, fantastic. Love that. And so he came up with the genius idea of a painting of, the younger Paul holding a picture of himself as he is today. And then the idea was to have the collage around it. And those were the things that we gave Peter that was all our influences, you know, whether it's the John Lennon picture or the Georgie Best picture or the picture, you know, New York or whatever, all the different things that we had, small phases, all those things. And, you know, did an exceptional job. And then obviously the record speaks for itself. It's a, I mean, it's a magnificent album that just, I think, you know, Wildwood sold like a hundred or two hundred thousand copies in in the UK, and Stanley Road sold a couple of million. That also came at the same time as the start of that whole. You know, that's when Oasis kind of. Uh, and I remember going to see Oasis in San Diego. I guess it would have been not the first tour, second tour. Going down to San Diego to see him and, and having a cassette of uh, Walk on Gilded Splinters, and Noel hadn't heard it yet, and Noel had played on it. So I remember giving that to him. And I remember it was, it was that small a venue that there wasn't even a dressing room. It was just the coach backed onto the back of the venue, reversed into the back of the venue. And that was sort of the dressing room. Um, so that was that time when, you know, everything was sort of exploded, you know, whether it's corporate pop or whatever you want to call it, but it felt like it, everything was on the kind of up and up sort of musically. And Paul was sort of leading that. Was it part of that seeing this British music that made you want to come home then? Because around it wasn't far after or long after that that you come no, back home from LA. You know right? what? That was certainly part of it. But you know, I, I wanted to come back. My you know, my parents were getting a little bit older, and my brother was living in Israel, so it's kind of LA to Israel was a long journey, and he just had his first kid, and I just you know, I, I felt I kind of run my course a little bit with Los Angeles. I had a really good time there, and it allowed me to do 
get involved in other things, you know, sort of dabble in the film world. And it's funny, very early on when I was, you know, at the risk of name dropping, when I was working for this design company, I only worked for them for six months when I first moved out there. One of the jobs that they were doing was Tin Machine for David Bowie. And I had to take some stuff to show it to him that had been flown in from New York. David happened to be in Los Angeles. So I had a meeting with him. It was a really lovely meeting. It was just the two of us. And I showed him the artwork. And in those days, it's still the old fashioned. It wasn't a printout. It was tracing paper and having to explain that was going to be that kind of, you know, I mean, I didn't have to explain anything to him, obviously, because he very well versed in that and so he went through the sleeve and made his comments just that and the other and at the end of the chat about the record sleeve we sort of sat down and you know, he said also oh, tell me a bit about yourself and i said well listen i've just moved out here from london and you know i've got this job and he said oh let me stop you right there he says i'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen since you come out here thinking it's like a kind of a blank canvas you're going to you know it's a fresh start but i said what will happen is despite you thinking otherwise is that you're just going to fall in with an English crowd. You'll find a bunch of expats that you not necessarily will know, but you'll have something in common, a friend in common, a place in common, whatever it is. And you'll fall into that world because it's just no matter what you think. And the, the fact that they speak English here, they still don't speak the same language as us. Mm. And so you'll fall in with an English crowd. And so, so I came out of the meeting thinking, well, he was very nice, but I'm not sure about that. P.S. That's exactly what happened. You end up <laughs> the English crowd. So I think you kind of, uh, with Los Angeles, you either, I think you get past that five or six year point where you think, right, I'm going to go for it. Or you kind of think, okay, I've done it. I'm coming home now. And I've had a good time and it was a good experience. But as you said, rightly said, kind of London felt like it was kind of swinging again. And I remember that summer being really nice weather as well. And it was just like, oh, well, okay, well, it's pretty, maybe, maybe it's time to come back. And it, and it did feel like it was a good time to come back. Now you tell Paul and John Weller, we must mention John, that you're coming back. And just before, like, I think literally a week before you're due back, they're like, no, come on, Las Vegas road trip. Yeah. This is Tyson Bruno, the boxing. It is indeed. Yeah. So <laughs> that was a fun trip. It was myself, Paul, Kenny Wheeler and John Weller. Who, and John, I always got on very well with. John, I mean, by that point in time, what's this? This is 96. So, you know, I've been working with Paul for 12, 13 years at this point. And so, you know, he knew I was a sort of a trusted friend. And I remember John, and I would always have this thing because, you know, I always had the luxury of seeing, watching Paul from the side of the stage. And he's, you know, I remember particularly one time, playing hung up and he sort of just kind of looked around at me and he went good in he <laughs> oh, brilliant you know, you know and, he, and he would always do that and he'd kind of look at me and look at him and he'd give me a little wink good in he and um always had a good time together anyhow we went on this road trip and they didn't want to fly so we got this stretch limo to take us from <laughs> a six hour drive possibly longer actually and i think we were sort of ready to go actually we were sort of suited and booted ready for that night so there we were ready to go and i remember at that time, having just put together, I put together this jam tribute album called Fire and Skill. And the album hadn't come out yet. It wasn't, Christ, it wasn't going to come out for, didn't come out for another three years, I don't think. But I remember the first people, one of the first people that I asked to do the track was the Beastie Boys. They were the only band that turned around and said, yeah, great, we'll do it without there being any, without saying what's the deal, how much we'd get. And it was doing, you know, it was just like, yeah, great, do it. And then two weeks later, I get a call saying, I'll come to, Grand Royal, which was their kind of studio clubhouse, and they'd done it. And I remember going to pick it up, and then it was literally just before this trip. And I remember playing the cassette of the thing to Paul, 
in the car endlessly and he absolutely loved it you know he just they did a version of star but it was very um it was so different wasn't it? it's great yeah and he absolutely loved it and it was great and it was i don't know so that was uh another memory from that time but yeah it was, that was a good trip and we stayed stayed in that i think we stayed at the mgm ground i think well, there are two things I want to ask you about this. Well, because John was a former boxer, right? Amateur boxer. Yeah. Absolutely loved that. So it wasn't just with going to Vegas, like the fight would have been a big thing for them. Oh, yeah. It was probably, I mean, it also it was inundated with English there. So it was a proper kind of like football crowd there. I mean, you didn't hear anyone cheering for Mike Tyson. It was, you know, the <laughs> deafening Bruno. I mean, Bruno lasted about 23 seconds or something. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, is it that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he didn't, like, he didn't <laughs> stay in the course. And I remember the warm up thing. And that's why I can't, I'm not a boxing fan, but I, you know, went for the fun of it. And, but the kind of the, war, the warm up bouts were women. And I remember thinking, this is a bit odd, isn't it? It's just like women knocking seven bells out of each other. I don't know if you can say that anymore, but it just seemed very odd to me. And, you know, I find it would have, I don't know, it wasn't my, my thing anyway. I find it all a, a little bit barbaric boxing, but, um, but it was a, it was a really good trip. And a week or so later, I came back to London. Yeah. That was it. Okay. Yeah. The other thing I should ask about Vegas is obviously it's the gambling capital of the world. And yeah. Kenny and John and Paul, I don't know about yourself, but they loved a bit of the old cards, right? There was this yeah, card score I, I thing going they, on. You know what? I don't remember them gambling there. And I think it was, you know, I've stayed well clear of those card games on the bus, you know, because. They'd be like, I think, come on, not for no, 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 thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't. I think they enjoy gambling amongst themselves. Not. I don't think. I don't remember them at the tables that night. All right. There's so many brilliant singles, so many brilliant albums of that period. We've got Heavy Soul. There's the wonderful design on Heliocentric with that brilliant photo on the cover from Lawrence Watson. But I love the typography on that. The singles around that time as well. He's the Keeper, Sweet Pea, just brilliant. But there's also a story I want to ask you about, which have been around that time, 2000, 2001. And the creation by you, and I think Gary Crowley was involved, of, was it an official Beatles bag that you created? Well, it wasn't official. Don't get me wrong. It was unofficial, but we sort of copied it as a bit of fun. Basically, back in the day, there was a BA, which is a sort of the precursor to British Airways, did these bags, and the BEA on the side of the bag was extended to have Beatles, though in front and tools at the end. And so myself and Gary Crowley, we had about 20 of them knocked up, you know, just for a bit of fun. But we sort of gave them out to the great and the good. And um, in fact, I remember, and this is again, Paul, God bless him, putting the worries on me. I remember giving one to Pedro Romani and Pedro was video director. He did a lot of Paul's videos. He did loads of them. I mean, he did Blur and he did Pulp and he was, he was kind of like the, the go-to guy. Yeah, like I think he was like Park Life and Common People and uh, you worked on the Wanted video with him as well because you'd known him for that's like... Right, yeah, that's right, yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Pedro, yeah, back in the days when I was working up at the face offices and he'd come up with Tony Fletcher, still in his school uniform. You know, yeah, like a teenager, school. right? Yeah. yeah. And um, so you have known Pedro a long, long time. Yeah, he did um, like through in, Into Tomorrow, right through to Changing Man, all exactly, those amazing yeah, videos, yeah. right? And yeah. also the Highlights and Hang-Ups documentary, yeah. So anyway, Pedro was doing shooting a video with Paul McCartney, and who you remember from earlier in our story. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I'll look him up after this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he was shooting a video, and I said to Pedro, oh, do me a favour, give Paul a... Uh, McCartney, that is a, a bag. You know, I get a kick out of it. So he says, yeah, yeah, sure I will. Yeah, of course I will. So I told Paul Weller that I'd done that. He goes, oh, I wouldn't fucking do that if I were you, mate. It's like, <laughs> why? So I'm going to come down here like a ton of brute, have the lawyers around. And I so, uh, <laughs> no, please, you know, so I think, oh, are you serious? He goes, no, mate, you will. <laughs> Winding me up. And it worked because he then, I then called Pedro, left 
numerous messages on his voicemail but he was shooting and i'm panicking at this point thinking oh god he hasn't got the message so about a week later pedro calls me up and goes oh god yes sorry just coming through it just got your messages you know what's up and i said oh that bag i was just leaving a message not to give that bag to mccartney he goes oh no no it's too late and I said, <laughs> what happened? he goes oh he said he absolutely loved it because he said he'd seen a picture of liam had one gallagher and um he said, oh, I'll tell you, mate, thanks very much. This, that, and the other, I really appreciate it. You know, you know, shake his hand for me. And so I thought, oh, that's all cool. So that, that sort of blew over. And then um, I'd seen Mary, who I was friends with, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And um, I mentioned that Pedro had given her dad a bag. She didn't miss a beat. She went, yeah, it's in with the lawyers now. <laughs> Bless her. Didn't somebody get in touch and they wanted one? They were, I can't remember who it was now. I remember reading the book, as you say that. At that time, I was working with um, Jude Law because, you know, as I mentioned, I, I kind of got involved in sort of film projects and producing and whatnot. Let me tell people what this is, folks. You should. Yeah. So this is producing your first feature film. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And this so, is Sleuth with Michael Caine, Jude Law, directed by Kenneth Branagh, for goodness yeah, sake. Yeah. And, and the final that. screenplay ever written by Harold Pinter. I mean, it, this is yeah. <laughs> just a bit of a project. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, it, it, and it was a f- sort of magical journey, really. And it was really... Um, Loved every second of it, really, because it was, you know, great experience. And Jude kind of met when I was out in Los Angeles before he was sort of a movie star. And we got on really well and decided that we want to try and work on something together. And I'd always loved the original of Sleuth. We kind of had our little shortlist. And the, the idea of the original is Sleuth, it's a two-hander. And it's the original one is Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine. And we were saying, and Jude was now going to play the Michael Caine role. And we were saying, well, you, wouldn't it be great? Who could we get to play the Laurence Olivier role. And both of us kind of said it almost at the same time, God, it'd be great if Michael Caine would do it. Oh, it'll never happen. So we worked out this little short list of people that we'd like. And just by chance, Jude had been out for some dinner and he was sat next to Michael Caine. And Michael Caine said, what are you up to? And he said, oh, I'm doing this, that, and the other. And said, but actually working on a new version of Sleuth. He said, I don't suppose you'd be interested in playing the Laurence Olivier part. And he goes, no, that." I like the sound of that. So anyway, they have their dinner happens. And at the end of the evening, Michael Caine comes over to Jude again and says, listen, can you post it on that? I'm really interested in that. So Jude calls me straight away, goes, oh, God, I just saw Michael Caine. He's, he's interested. And we sort of had a, a movie. And then we, you know, Ken Browner was been a fan of, you know, forever. We thought, oh, would, you know, do you think he might want to direct it? And he wanted to do it. And I think Harold Pinter came on board before Ken, actually. But anyway, so we had this sort of kind of dream team together and it was a really fabulous experience. And Michael Caine was an absolute, absolute joy, you know, and I was a huge fan. In fact, his pictures on our favorite shop. Yes. Photo that I had, which was mine, which we put on the our favorite shop thing. So, you know, I'm a big fan from a kid and, you know, to sort of have the opportunity of working with him. And I'm still in touch with him to this day. He's lovely. You know, he's really lovely, lovely guy. Great stories, very warm, no bullshit with him, no entourage, no, you know, he comes in, does his thing, you know. And I remember on the first day of shooting, I was sat with this guy that does the sound. You watch it on the monitors and, you know, Michael walks by and he just kind of looks at me and says, how was that then? You know, and I sort of (laughs) have to turn out of it. Who is he talking to? A really lovely experience. Anyhow, Jude then went on to do, I think he, what was that film called? Oh, the Sam Mendes film that Tom Hanks was in. Oh, yeah, Road to Perdition. Jude had the bag, and then Jude came back on a break, and he says, oh, I forgot to tell you, you know, I saw, you know, Tom Hanks was asking me, I don't suppose you've got a spare bag, have you? I said, yeah, I think we have. So he gave him a, 
bag and then i got this really lovely le- sort of typed letter back from tom saying oh you know thanks very much for the bag it's fab gear and i you know i'll use it when i do my come over to britain to do my command performance you know <laughs> yeah so that was a kind of a bit of fun that which was around about the same time as heliocentric funnily enough i hadn't seen him for years but i bumped into julian broad this weekend who did the photography on that I love that sleeve, actually. And we had some fun because we printed inside again and you know, the special bright colours and day-glow colours. It was a really nice sleeve, that. I and mean, I think, uh, to my mind, it's a sort of an underrated album as well, that one. Yeah, Paul doesn't seem that keen, but I think because, not the album sleeve, but the album, but I think he was, maybe wasn't in a great place at the time. He was finding it hard to write again, yeah. that kind of thing. But well, I was saying this to me the other day, it's a terrific album. It's Picking Up Sticks is a great song. Frightened yeah. is an outstanding yeah. song. Frightened should have been a single. I said that from the get-go. Why they didn't release that as a single was just, that's up there with You Do Something To Me in the ballad department. Absolutely. So many of these albums are proper experiences for us fans in terms of the music, but also the visuals. And the world of music has changed so much that you don't get that on a little mp3 on spotify do you no no you don't no but i guess vinyl's making a sort of a healthy comeback you know i'm very fortunate to sort of been involved in the tail end of the golden era of when records meant something and also songwriting i think is you know i don't think songwriting is as important as it perhaps was back then songs were very much songwriter driven Mm. and then they were produced now they're sort of songs seemingly are just it's a sound and there's a you know community of writers three four five six seven eight nine writers credited on a song which yeah i was listening to um seth mcfarlane on some podcasts and he's a massive sinatra fan as am i and i've been fortunate enough to do some work with the sinatra estate and even got one coming out at the end of the year the 70th anniversary of Capitol records Sinatra Platinum thing, which I did the cover art for, which oh, is lovely, right? To do. But he was saying that you know the difference between today's world and when Sinatra was singing is then it was solely about the songwriting. You know, it had the writing was everything else and was everything, and the performance and the arrangements were kind of secondary. If you didn't have that bedrock of the song in the first place, you didn't have anything. Whereas today, it's about sounds, and so I don't know. Maybe that was the time when. I don't know, Paul was sort of buffering up against that world where songwriting wasn't as relevant as Mm. it perhaps should be. There was this wonderful book that you created, 2020, this sort of in pre-COVID, but came out, I remember, around this, the pandemic time, cover to cover. That was actually a lockdown project. That was was it, right. Yeah, that was me going through my kind of archives, just kind of tidying stuff up. In fact, I got involved in one of Tim Burgess's um, Twitter listening parties for our favourite shops. I found all this stuff that I had and kind of contributed to the show, or whatever they call it. And it was off the back of that. People said to me, oh, you should do a book, you should do a book, you should do a book. And I thought, oh, let me see what I've got. And I kind of went through everything. And I, you know, I kept lots of stuff and I did lots of photography of Paul and the Style Council, Oasis and various other bits and pieces. So that's kind of what the book was. It was something to do during lockdown. Okay. I guess it's that nice thing of being able to look back on this work. And we're talking about not just Weller, but John Lennon, Nick Haywood, David Bowie, you've mentioned, Lenny Kravitz, the Beastie Boys, Frank Sinatra, Oasis. And it goes on and on and on. George Michael, and we'll come back to George in a sec. It must have been really nice to get in the lofts and get all those photos out and those images out, those designs out. You know what? Some of them you look back on and you think, oh, Jesus. And then other ones you think, oh, that actually still looks pretty good. You know, it's 
Listen, I was young when I started and I had no training. So some things that, you, that I did when I was 21, 22, it's just like, oh my God, you know, what was I thinking? You know, <laughs> at the time you just think, oh, I got away with it on that one. And, you know, it was nice recollections and it was, it was a very nice thing to be able to do. You know, I did it through Kickstarter. I had some very nice help actually from a guy called Rob Wilkins, who actually helped out on the Style Council. He was an executive producer. And that's where I met him. Style Council documentary. He's very much involved in the Terry Pratchett world, he knew about printing and books and manufacturing. And he, he kind of hooked me up with his printers and gave me the best advice and the best help. So I had a really nice finished book at the end of it. So they, he and his partner, Susie, were fantastically helpful. And it turned out to be a really nice book. And we did it on Kickstarter and it sort of met its target, like in about six hours. So I was very flattered and thrilled that there was still so much love for you know, obviously massive amount was Paul fans and Oasis fans and, and George fans as well. So it was nice to have sort of put it all together under one roof. What I loved as well is it's the, it's your story as well. So, so much of it is, we're not just talking about the shots. Oh, it's fascinating, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) But we we get, well, there are some brilliant stories in there. Um, The thing is now, if you've not got a copy, you've not got a copy, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So so this is proper exclusive stuff. And it's a beautiful book. It's another one of those books I I talk about whereby you have to have snooker gloves almost to get it out of the (laughs) room. So beautiful. You don't want to, you know, the kids are going nowhere near that. It's a lovely, lovely piece. And it was lovely to read the stories of um, around George as well. I wasn't aware of the proper connection with George Michael. I knew about the the sleeve you created, obviously that amazing sleeve for Listen Without Prejudice, but all the connections are stories there. And let's talk about the Wham documentary as well, right? So this was this summer, Netflix, this incredible documentary, which I absolutely loved, that told huge the story. Bang, bang. Just, 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 let's rewind that. Stop the tape. Huge hit. It's massive. That's yeah. massive, right? It's like, I mean, I think it's still in the little number one box on Netflix. It's hit a nerve with people love it and, and rightly so. And that was always the goal to make something that was kind of a celebration of them and of George. And it's just, again, it kind of follows in the mold of um, Supersonic in the sense that it's a short period of time. Supersonic was kind of like two and a half years from them signing off to getting 2.3 million applications, ticket applications for Nebworth. So uh, with Wham, 1982, they're still at school. 1986, they played their last gig at Wembley Stadium and having conquered the world in between. And I'd shown George Supersonic, sadly, just before he passed, because um, the film hadn't come out yet. And I took him up a DVD of the film because he was ever so keen to see it. And the September before he passed, the film came out in October, I think. It was just the two of us. We were such a lovely evening watching it. But the film really sort of touched a nerve with him. He loved the film, but it, it he got kind of a little bit emotional, I think, watching it because he felt that it was... I think what he got from it was seeing an, an artist connecting with an audience on a kind of grand scale like that. So that's why I felt I had no problem in trying to pursue Andrew, who I'd known from way back in the 80s as well, came to me just ahead of his book coming out saying, I want to do something to promote the book. Would you, you know, would you be interested in producing it? And I said to him, it's bigger than that. In the same way when Noel came to me wanting to do something to celebrate Nebworth, I said, it's bigger than that. It's a phenomenon. Let's do it as a feature length documentary. And it'll take time to do that. So Andrew's book came out, it took much longer to make the film. But you want to do something that celebrates it. Yeah. Two things about it, right? So I remember I, we had a little family holiday the weekend it came out. So I hadn't yet seen it. Landed on Netflix on the Friday, I think, if I remember rightly. And we went, we were away that weekend with our family. And my sister-in-law said, have you seen the Wham documentary? I was like, well, no, it's just, it's just landed. We're not, you know, mm-hmm. time. she goes, I've watched it four times already. It's incredible. Oh, wow. <laughs> she literally, oh, and, and I, but I don't even think that she was a massive Wham fan back in the day. She just was like, it's just amazing. And she was like, it's such a lovely story of these boys who, 
and this wonderful relationship between the two of them. But then the second thing I was going to say is it, it really tells Andrew's story in a beautiful way and just what an important part of yeah. Wham! he was. This wasn't yeah. the George Michaels show, right? right. He, he no, was, exactly. Yeah. And it's George saying it as well. So yeah. I'm saying, oh, by the way, it was me. It was kind of George saying it in no uncertain terms. And I think that's what the takeaway from the film is that it's just about friendship, you know, and that's in the same way in Supersonic, it's kind of about brothers and an absent dad how that impacts the way they are with each other and the relationship they have with their mum. but this is the same thing it's you want it to be a fan of the music to enjoy and, and that's what we try to achieve with both supersonic and with wham is to make it something that touches a nerve and if you like the music great with wham it's very hard not to yeah, you can't. It's impossible. Yeah. Those, those songs are so damn catchy, right? But yeah. also you realize what a phenomenon you said it. It becomes like those gigs towards the end and, yeah. just, and like, um, and massive, aren't they? Also, but this is the time, you know, and again, we touched upon it earlier where you kind of, kind of artists just got on with their stuff. There wasn't anyone, there's was no media training. There was no, Oh, you've got to do this. Oh, you've got to go by this rule book. You know, they just did what they did. They got on with it. They were right. Same with Paul's career, you know, it's do what you do and you get on with it and you believe in yourself. And I, th I think maybe that's gone a little bit now where everything has to be done sort of a little bit by a marketing playbook. Whereas back then you just kind of got on with it. And look, it's a remarkable film. It is brilliant. People haven't seen it. I don't know what the connection was with Paul and George. There was that link DC Lee with Wham and the Star Council. Were they mates? That was a tricky one to navigate at certain points because uh, as I recall... I remember Dee doing Top of the Pops with the Style Council and Wham on the same show. And I'm very fond of Dee. She was lovely and uh, sort of reconnected with her on the Wham film, which was nice. But Paul, I think it's pretty, you know, Paul probably didn't get on with anyone in the 80s, really. <laughs> 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 uh, within, you know, other bands, as it were. And I think there was a whole hoo-ha with Wham because they did the miners benefit, but they mined or something. And instead of people saying, wasn't it great that they did the miners benefit because they're this teeny bot pop act that were all over the papers. They were just criticized because they didn't play live. It's just like, does anyone give a fuck really about that's not the issue. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. They're out to support miners, which is the issue anyhow. So I think that kind of, it turned a little bit then. And then I remember we'd gone out one night and it's Paul Paolo and myself. And then George turned up in this little club and he just got back off the Wham America tour. I remember literally arrived that day. Good to see him. His cousin was there. And then George said, I'm going back to Paul's flat. He wants to talk to me. So they went off and then didn't hear anything more about that until there was something in the paper where there was an interview, I think with Julie Birchall and with George. And he mentioned something about Paul living in a very small flat and sort of Paul showing him round like it was a very small flat. And so from that point onwards, it's that became your fucking mate, your fucking mate. This, your fucking mate. <laughs> right. So, um, <laughs> you feel that there, there'd be this kind of mutual respect because they're both, you know, clearly. Yeah. And then, so I remember once um, I lived in a small flat, which I worked out of. I remember it was, um, I was just doing some finishing off something on Listen Without Prejudice and George had come over to see the artwork or something. And literally the drawing board was in my bedroom. You know, there's a dark room in there and it's tiny. And then, you know, we're looking at stuff and then all of a sudden the buzzer goes, hello? Yeah, it's me, Paul. So I thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, <laughs> this is going to be fun. Just the three of us together. <laughs> and so um, 
said to him, that's Paul, you might want to leave. He goes, I was going anyway. So um, they sort of brushed each other, past each other, and I'm like, all right, that was, that was the uh, the end of that. So, no, I don't think there was, um, you know, Paul, as I'm sure others have told you, he, he makes his mind up about people, and the mind is made up. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, this has been so lovely hearing your stories, and there's so much more, I know. But look, thank you for the artwork. I mean, from a Weller fan who discovered Weller, uh uh-huh, yeah, you know, I poured over all these sleeves for the years, and still do, you know, I got back into the vinyl again recently, I'm recollecting it all. These are fabulous pieces of work. You must be so proud of that portfolio, if you like. I am certainly with a lot of the solar stuff, but the Style Council, in some ways more so because it's the entire catalogue start to finish. You know, I did the, sort of the cover art with Paul. So, um, but, you know, I love some of the, the solo stuff I did with Paul as well and very proud of yeah, but both. The Style Council was such a visual band as well, right? The image of everything was so important yeah. and there was so much of it. The volume of stuff was incredible. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was just kind of, as I was saying before, it's kind of learning and discovering stuff as we went through it. So it wasn't, there was no reference points other than physically seeing those references. There was no books to flick through or, yeah. you know, so it was, it, it was a journey of discovery for us all, really. Yeah, and the collaboration, which is lovely as well. I think the fact that you're all in it together, you're, yeah. you know, you're all enjoying working together is fabulous. I mentioned the book and the fact that, you know, that that's done. These are going to be auctioned and go for high prices in future because there are no more of those being printed, but there must be loads of stuff in the archive, loads of things we haven't seen, loads of things that you want to put out into the world as yeah, well. So it's funny you say that actually, because I'm, because uh, of the Wham film and everything else, I've been a bit preoccupied, but just about to launch a new selection of prints that come from the book, limited edition prints, this, that. The other in time for Christmas and whatnot. I've had lots of requests for those because people love all those, especially the Style Council era prints. So yeah, I'll probably do that before too long. Well, we'll put the details in the show notes. We'll um, we'll make sure people are aware of that when it happens. I have two final questions for you before you go, Simon. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam. So back at the beginning of this podcast episode, it could be the Style Council or it could be Paul Weller solo. What would you go with? I think I'd have to go with Hung Up. Ah, for me, that's kind of got everything. It's a great song performance. The band is fantastic, but you can sort of hear the reference points in, in it as well. And the little homages to whatever. Yeah. For me, that's still sad. In fact, I saw a clip of them doing that on something with Paul, Steve Craddock, Yolanda Charles and Steve White, just the, the four of them. And it was just like, Oh boy, you know, they knocked it out of the park. That band was so on fire, but a yeah. song he still plays live. I saw him do that last year. I know oh, this, yeah. I saw him do that earlier this year in Amsterdam, actually. Yeah. It's a, it's a great yeah. song. And the fact that it came out as a single and then it, it was so like Wildwood came back out again with that added to it. I right? can it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the reasons you like it because it was double job, right? Yeah, to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah. No, but I really like the sleeve for that as well because it's got that, as I mentioned before, that kind of Sergeant Pepper wash over the that great Lawrence Watson photo, and the typography is really minimal and simple. I really, you know, I like that. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret from giving up my radio career that I never got to interview Weller. So I created a podcast to make it happen. <laughs> if it happens, Simon, what should I ask him? Oh, God. Um, oh, dear. That's a good question. I, I, I mean, we spent a lot of time in, in each other's pockets for a long, long time. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. I wonder if he regrets, actually, is a question that Gary Crowley, Paolo Hewitt, and myself, because Paolo was interviewing him, met Steve Marriott. And Paul had the opportunity to come but didn't. And I wonder if he sort of, you know, because he didn't 
you know, he passed away not too long after that. Whether he regrets not meeting him, you know, sometimes they meet your heroes. So, so maybe that was the fear there. But I wonder if, if he has a regret of that, maybe asking that. That's a good question. Yeah. And was it the decision not to come because of that heroes thing of kind of actually, I'm just going to become across as a fan? I can't speak for Paul, but you know, sometimes you did get the impression that he was a bit, he could be a bit shy with people. I remember we went to see Curtis Mayfield at the Commonwealth Institute. And I think the same thing happened there. Someone said, hey, do you want to get up and play with him? I think if memory certainly didn't want to do it. I don't know if he, I don't think he went back to meet him either. So. Um, but Steve Marriott was Steve Marriott, you know, that's got to be you know, outside of the Beatles or alongside the Beatles. That's got to be the sort of certainly a visual influence, vocals, you know, all sorts, really. So I just wondered if maybe that was a little too close. Good question. I love it. Hey, Simon, thank you so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. So lovely to meet you. Absolute pleasure. My thanks once again to Simon Halfham for joining me on the podcast. What a cracking guest. You can find out more details, including so many of the images and designs that we talked about and more in the show notes to this podcast. Just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, do head into our store for your official podcast merchandise, including a brand new special podcast mug. Now that we have revealed this podcast will come to an end at episode 180. Whilst you're in the store, if you fancy it, you can buy a virtual coffee doing exactly that, says John Nicholson. Hello to Martin Morrow. Thanks for your support. Hello to Brian Baxter, who says, marvellous job, Dan. Thoroughly enjoyed listening on my early morning walks. Hello to Brian G. Hi to Steve, who says, thank you from Canada. Hello to Ron, who says, thanks for a wonderful podcast, Dan. All the best in your future ventures. Thank you to Paul Baker, who says, sad it's coming to an end, Dan. Hope you go out on your ultimate high. Thank you to Mike Steer for grabbing a virtual coffee. Hello to Sarah Kane. Smeg from the 829 Club. Thank you, sir. Hello to Jen, Stephen Cartwright, Stu Burns, Jane the Jam Tart with a heart. Thank you to you all for your generosity. Thanks also to Nick Keane. Much appreciated to each and every one of you. If you want to get involved, just head to my store, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can get in touch on social media at wellerfanpod or on Facebook, Instagram and threads. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.